Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco, and we will be interviewing Dr. David Bentley Hart. Uh, Dr. Hart has a new book out with Baker Academic Press called Tradition and Apocalypse. I believe it was released just last week, um, and we were fortunate to be able to get some advanced copies of the book, review those, and then have a conversation with Dr. Hart last week. Um, so I'm uh, very excited to release this uh, interview, as you all will probably be able to tell from even our the interview itself. Um, and Dr. Hart was gracious, to, gracious enough to give us uh, a little bit of his time and talk through this book. So uh, we we do talk primarily about the content of um, his his new book, uh, and uh, we also do go on to some other topics. Uh, we touch on uh, baseball, uh, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. Don't get a chance to talk about it very much on the podcast. Uh, we talk about um, a little bit of early Christianity, um, and uh, and even uh, Doctor Hart's translation of the New Testament. So. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, if you like this episode, please do rate us and review us on iTunes. Um, you can find us on Twitter at, at TheologyXIAN and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash A History of Christian Theology. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, uh, we have a Patreon page, uh, Patreon.com slash a-H-O-C-T. Um, so uh, we will have uh, many more episodes coming up, but I wanted to get this one out as soon as possible uh, because it was so much fun to be able to talk with uh, Dr. Hart. Go. Very good. Yeah. Well, today um, uh, it, I'm uh, Chad Kim and uh, Tom Velasco, and we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. David Bentley Hart. Um, Dr. Hart has written uh, – well, you've got a bunch of books coming out recently, um, although – the purpose of this conversation is basically Tradition and Apocalypse, an essay on the future of Christian belief uh, with Baker Academic. Um, and they were kind enough to send us some advanced copies uh, so we could uh, look through that. Um, and Dr. Hart, are you at Notre Dame? Is it the Center for Advanced Study or something? What, or, or... Well, it's called the Institute for Advanced Study, but in point of fact, I finished uh, my four years there just as COVID hit. So okay. uh, actually, I'm in a, in a state of suspended animation uh, at the moment. But uh, okay. So uh, yes, in the sense that that was that was my most recent. Uh, well, actually, I have another uh, research appointment right now, but that's that's boring and it's elsewhere. So and it's okay you know, done remotely. So fair enough. Uh, well, I. Um... Yeah, had had lots of questions. I think I probably understood uh, a decent bit of the book, but there's plenty more uh, for, for, for me to learn from. And so I uh, really appreciate Dr. Hart taking the time to come on. Um, as, as it sort of usually goes, I, um, I try to give some advance notice of the things that I was interested in talking about, but we'll sort of see where the conversation goes. Um, yeah, I, so, I didn't I didn't actually re uh, read the questions you sent me in advance because in the past, uh, I've discovered that what that does make me uh, imagine t in advance too much of what I might want to say, and then it all comes spilling out, and an hour becomes a day, and a day. A month. <laughs> well, Let's just go with spontaneity here. I, I well, I think Chad tends, Ch Chad tends to be the one who's more organized. I know with our podcast crew and uh i know he always sends stuff out to me and to trevor our other co-host and it's uh yeah i don't i know i don't read any almost anything he sends me either so kind of makes your life feel meaningless doesn't it chad <laughs> that's right <laughs> thank you yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so well, there you go. <laughs> well, I just kind of wanted to take off from the title of the book, right? So tradition and apocalypse. Um, and I thought you were sort of thinking of like these as two kind of ends of a continuum, the tradition and the apocalypse. But it seems after that I read the book, it was uh, it sort of was an exploration of how tr um, tradition um, sort of tie, not tides us over, but is the connecting thread from sort of one apocalypse, one revelation of a God and Christ uh, in the scriptures to a, a sort of final apocalypse or a final unveiling and return, um, sort of the exit, to, uh, the, the exit and the return um, uh, so common in uh, medieval theology and, and platonic philosophy. Uh, but could you uh, uh, 
you sort of lay out basically what you're trying to argue in the book as it relates to uh, these two, you know, tradition and apocalypse? Yeah, what you said. Oh, right. I can expand on that if you like. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, then I got it. All right, well, at least I got no, 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 no. Let me. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Another, another okay. dimension of the title there would be that the tradition itself uh, is an apocalyptic medium if it's a living tradition. That is, it, it is um, oriented toward and uh, that, that final unveiling in which we no longer see is in a glass darkly. But uh, seeing in a glass darkly is not the same thing as seeing nothing at all, that we mm -hmm. can discern something of that final form of revelation as it's mediated in the tradition. And But understand that a tradition is a living tradition so long as it is faithful, not simply to a received deposit of propositional claims, or even of things that we take to be doctrines because we're told they're doctrines. Uh, but those things always and only in the light of that final end that elicits them naturally. Uh, that, 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 that what makes a tradition live first is a fidelity to the future uh, before it becomes a, a curation and diligent concern for the past. You can't separate these things. I mean, if there is such a thing as a living tradition, it's a continuum, it's a continuity, but it's a living continuity, like a, a tree springing up from a seed, not, not, not like simply a, a static object that, that, that once discerned and delineated, then needs only be polished at regular intervals and <laughs> defended against, against the critical eyes of those who might have a different take on it. Yeah. Well, and, and actually that uh, idea of the, the seed in the tree is one sort of key element that you lay out beginning in the beginning of the book um, and, and where you explain how Aristotelian causes work. Um, and you use that, that same metaphor, which I found, uh, you know, um, illuminating as you brought it into conversation with this notion of tradition. Um, so can you can you lay out for for the audience a little bit, maybe who are less familiar with an Aristotelian cause, what you're describing there, uh, and as especially with this example of the seed and the tree and how that fits with yeah, the um, life of faith. I mean, I, I use the Aristotelian imagery because, I mean, or or the language of causality, uh, in what I take to be its proper acceptation, because I think that this is just a very simple. Uh, predicative logic of, of what it is for something to be a substance that is a continuous reality. Uh, and especially, this is especially important in the realm of the organic, you know, what, what constitutes an organism as opposed, or, you know, a, a, a continuous living reality as opposed to just a, a fortuitous confluence of, of diverse forces. It looks like a unity, but 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 in fact, it's just an accidental, I don't know, momentum. Um, and uh, of course, Aristotelian causality in the sciences was rejected methodologically in early modernity, mostly out of a misunderstanding of what it was. I mean, it had already come to be mistaken for uh, a theory of physical causation in which the four the four causes were somehow um, different kinds of causal forces extrinsically working uh, upon objects uh, you know what there really is and and the term that we we, we call we, we translate as causa in Latin or calls in modern English was atia or sometimes ation depending on but, but, but usually atia in the feminine and it's better translated as a kind of ration, as rationality in the four causes, you know, the, the mm. formal and the material, the efficient or, or first cause and the final, is simply the rational structure of anything that has integrity and that exists in relation to a universe of things with integrity uh, amidst change. It, mm -hmm. it is capable of change. Some of that is essential, some of it is accidental, 
but in some sense remains what it is. And if tradition, and I guess we'll get to this shortly, I mean, unless one has a fundamentalist sort of naivete and imagines that somehow the, the entire body of Christian belief was delivered at once in the form of a Bible bound in Morocco leather with a Protestant canon that fell out of heaven one day, uh, in which all the mysteries of the faith are perspicuously revealed and there's never been any controversy that was anything other than perversity on the part of the stupid, but actually, and in the more Newmanian sense, in the sense that modern scholarship, you know, of, of a tradition whose development is part of the essence of of the revelation it, it uh, claims to impart, then that tradition has to have a unity of that sort, uh, because otherwise, it's uh, claiming that tradition is a unity and that tradition reveals uh, without being able to explain it in terms of that kind of rational structure in which there really is a final and a formal causality at work is simply a way of dissembling historical accident, historical fortuity as having an intrinsic logic when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So the question, the essential, essential question of the volume, which is the question that was first raised theologically by Newman, and only significantly, to my mind, expanded upon uh, by Blondell. So they're the two central figures in chapter three. Uh, if tradition is that thing, then, then it has to have a unity that could be described in something like this Aristotelian sense. That's so then this, this unity of tradition, is what, we're, is what you're trying to get at is kind of like, at the core of a definition of, of Christianity itself then in it? Like the tradition being the thing that is what makes Christianity Christianity? Is that part at least of the problem? Well, I mean, if, if there is such a thing as Christianity, yeah. I mean, I mean it, it's, it's obviously an historical phenomenon. So either it's, uh, and, and again, I, 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 I rarely speak of Christianity in the singular way, except when I have to, you know, as a short form, because the diversity of things calling themselves Christianity clearly do not form a single religion. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but they all, for the most part, share in certain memories that, uh, at their best, are a kind of a kind of uh, integral logic. At their worst, are a kind of diffuse, confused nostalgia. Um, but uh, to the degree that Christianity exists as anything other than a sequence of historical events, some of them social, some political, some religious, some economic, uh, mostly just, you know, the, the results of uh, accidental forces of history, then yeah, that's what tradition is. It, it, otherwise, there is no such thing as Christianity at all. There's only the continuum of, of a sort of a line of flight that was initiated in the first century. Well, I think that's where I'm particularly intrigued here. This is why I raised the question, because probably, I don't know, I don't know how many people you encounter like this, Dr. Hart, but I'm, I, I think I'm one of that subset of American who, who grew up in the evangelical tradition. Uh, and oh, that's a very small number, surely. <laughs> in America. But who then, although, you know, I, I don't think I have as, as like a, uh, a negative of an experience with it as some have. I, of course, recognize its, its great shortcomings and only in, I mean, I've been now for years, I think, engaging, of course, the Words. broader. It's short, great comings. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's many great shortcomings or whatever. Um, but it, what that has uh, definitely, one of the effects has been for me to try to wrestle with that concept of what is Christianity. And uh, I, I like how you did just qualify that a second ago and say, well, insofar as Christianity is a thing at all, um, I, I don't think I've ever asked myself that question before. So, uh, but I have been wondering, what is the tradition that we share that makes us all united, so to speak, in that sense? So, this well, one, actually, I don't even have to presume that there is such a thing. I, I, I don't, again, I, I don't know if 
all the things that call themselves Christianity necessarily have to be viewed as belonging to an actual thing with an essence mm -hmm. uh, in common. Um, but if there is a thing with an essence, whether it's held in common or not, then it has to have a kind of organic continuity if it's at once historical and also single, you know. And by single, I don't mean lacking in diversity. I simply mean that there's that there's a living continuity in which uh, the later developments are not simply uh, spontaneous mutations or or created by uh, external extrinsic forces. The, 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 the destroy. And there's been quite a lot of that in Christian history. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You yeah. Know, from especially from the four, early fourth century onward, it's fair to say. Mm -hmm. uh, that Christianity and the Christian religion uh, are, are, have been, shall we say, uh, only dialectically interrelated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good descriptor. <laughs> I was I was trying to find one of the quotes that you have in the book, and I guess I you know you sort of gesture at what this essence uh, might be sort of, or what could make for something close to uh, what you're describing as a unitive tradition. And at one point you, uh, you talk about Basil uh, of Caesarea's accomplishment was in this, and you say that it was an astonishing one. On the one hand, his argument was in no sense procrustean or artificial. He truly drew on the language and beliefs in, and inherent logic of the Christian past. But on the other it was the result of a boldly creative interpretive labor prosecuted with eyes fixed upon the only final cause that can make full sense of the efficient movement of the tradition through time. And it, you know what the, in another point in the book, you sort of maybe like, again, try to draw uh, some like some sketches of those things uh, of where we're uh, of what makes it kind of unitive. And it does seem like it's sort of like uh, the, the creation of God and then kind of maybe uh, the, the Athanasian uh, God became man so that man might become God and this kind of return. And some of those are like, I feel like are the places where you, like I say, most closely gesture at what what is uh, the the closest thing to to point at something uh, for an, an essence is that is that fair to say or am I misunderstanding that? Well, every significant dogmatic or theological formulation that proved durable in the early centuries, and it is important to start in the early centuries because, of course. There's the immediacy of the of the evangel going forth into the world. There is a familiarity with the language and texts and traditions, and in fact, the cosmology in which the faith first appeared. Um, but mostly because the, the patristic period was uh, unburdened with either an invariable canon or a dogmatic deposit, mm. right? And so there's a direct engagement with this scriptural tradition that yields pretty unanimously. It's not just the Cappadocians or Athanasius. I mean, it, it's it's the entire tradition, Alexandrian and Byzantine and, and Western as well, uh, in the early centuries. That that when you take the full language the Christians use, whether they have a as yet a defined rationale holding it all together, you know, creation being uh, the temple of God, God being that all in all in which all things seek their consummation, all of this being accomplished in the exchange of natures in Christ, uh, the, you know, that you should become partakers of the divine nature, on and on. You see that there is this constant thematic of not simply uh, an extrinsic relationship between God and creation, but a mutual indwelling and exchange. This is like, mm -hmm. and that salvation from the early centuries is understood as actually being integrated, literally integrated into the body of Christ and sharing in, you know, becoming heirs of the kingdom, basically becoming sons and daughters of God, not metaphorically, but in a way entirely contingent upon the sonship of Christ. So. In the early, when the Nicene period comes about, which is a period of incredible ferment and creativity in which 
the party that ultimately won was not actually the conservative party. Right. This is, of course, how history always gets rewritten. But in fact, the Nicene theology was was uh, a synthetic achievement. Nonetheless, it was de it was the one that that explained this language as it had always been used in a way in which which made sense of the incarnation of the language of creation and, and, and the language of salvation, as it had always been taught, in light of, of, of a, a, a sort of this, this final notion that as yet can only be imperfectly formulated and yet reigned over the whole of, of deification, you know, and you find that this is true of the Christological controversies as well. What motivated them? Well, as with the Trinitarian part, what prompted the actual doctrinal decisions were political as much as spiritual imperatives. And therefore, institutionally, there's always something dubious, suspect, imperfect, and I would argue corrigible in every... In a, nonetheless, the arguments were one on the merits that that either this all of this language had a unity, a unity that could unfold into future and better, uh, ex, you know, future and, and and better expressions, including words like amoosius, mm -hmm. which had to be invented for the purpose, um, and that it was that future horizon of intelligibility towards which all of these things were being drawn inexorably but as yet imperfectly that that, that 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 justified the decisions that were made at Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon and elsewhere um, so yeah I mean the, the tradition I'm talking about is that early patristic tradition which is also the one that made best sense of the Bible but also, created the foundation of all later developments which presumed deification or rather that that simple narrative god became a human being that human beings might become god otherwise why are we even talking why, why would we even believe this story of incarnation you know the the the, the sort of shriveled uh, emaciated version of soteriology that turns this into a rescue operation only and one that's based upon some sort of forensic uh, satisfaction of, of, of God's violated honor in abstraction from the ontological claims being made about the divine destiny of creation and the human intention of God uh, does not make sense of all that language. In fact, it, it, it makes it unintelligible. And so, you know, even though the book talks about the future being the, you know, in a sense, or the, the futurity of confession and the corrigibility of the present and the past in light of that future, I never claim that, uh, that, that this can be done in such a way that the past is rendered unintelligible. It has to clarify what has gone before. And, uh, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this. That's the opposite of, of how Newman went about trying to justify it, because honestly, he's trying to prove from historical reconstruction that the, that the decisions reached were in, inevitable. You can't do that. I mean, it simply doesn't work. The, the historical evidence is too diffuse and could have gone any number of ways. The question is, in light of what... Uh, where, where theologians like Mag, you, know, you mentioned Maximus, I do remember that. Uh, <laughs> in, in, so I must have read something that you sent me. Yeah. Um, you know, Jordan. The, 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 Jordan. Good job, Chad. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, Jordan Wood, yeah, is back at SLU a little bit. So I, I'm hoping to talk with him about his new book on Maximus the Confessor. It's very good. It's, um, um, I think, you know, he, uh, actually takes Maximus in his word. I have some disagreements with Jordan on, on the Neo-Chalcedonian synthesis on, on how much work the concept of hypostasis does or, or how it works or should work. Uh, um, well, I have a, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I just um, 
got the proofs for an article that I wrote looking at how Theodoret of Cyrus understood the hypostatic union and some of these uh, – uh, these questions around that, speaking of him being conservative, right? I mean, the interesting part, point being that the Antiochenes are way more conservative in their language about this and may more, way more yeah. reticent than Cyril was. Uh, oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, Tom, I yeah. thought you were going to say something there, but. Oh, well, I was going to ask something uh, that kind of pertains to some stuff you, you were saying before, Dr. Hart. Um, it, you just got me thinking, what, where does this impulse come from? And it does seem to pop up in church history, although of course, uh, like all throughout church history, but certainly, obviously with the Reformation, then it becomes the the thing. The, this impulse to 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 grab a snapshot of antiquity and say that is where the the undistilled truth exists, and we're the ones who are holding most firmly to this undistilled truth. Why isn't there the comfort? Uh, I mean. It seems almost as if those who are kind of discussing the tradition as a living tradition that is changing, although many hold to that, it's like even when that's taught, like at a base level, you still want to, they, they still want to kind of couch it in terms of, but we're really just expounding what has already existed. We are holding to the original. We are and, not. And, and as a rule, they're not very daring, are they? I mean, you <laughs> yeah. know, if you, if you say, well, then wouldn't the logical consequence of what you're, well, wait, you see, well, you see when my next book comes out, uh, Your Gods, that's uh, two months hence, I think, um, is that there are lo certain logical entailments of these claims that have just been lying there more or less in the open for 2,000 years that nonetheless we avoid enunciating because they, they seem to go over the boundary of uh, discretion or or the licit discourse so even those who speak of it as a living tradition quite often you know again you mentioned the jordan woods book on maximus well maximus is a good example of someone who actually um he, he follows things to their their final uh to their final uh logical entailments with with extraordinary Clarity, except that 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 uh, most expositors of Maximus will spend a great deal of time explaining why he's not really saying what he seems to be saying. <laughs> uh, and it's curious. I mean, you know, every once in a while, a theologian comes along who is too 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 socially inept or whatever to know that he's supposed to or she's supposed to exercise this sort of discretion and then you get a sort of like a John Scotus or Riganus or someone who's willing to uh, investigate uh, just how far the the um, consequences of certain of these ancient claims might lead and in the 20th century of course my favorite 20th century theologian Sergei Bulgakov who was almost insanely uh, willing to follow the logic of the tradition to ends that, that, that scared many of his contemporaries, not only in the Orthodox Church, but, you know, they still do seem scandalous, and yet they follow with such rigorous logical consistency from other things that Christians are expected to believe that it's, it's sort of amusing uh, to, to, to see people trying to wriggle free of his reasoning. I don't know where the impulse comes from, and part of it is an institutional impulse, and the church becomes an institution mm -hmm. uh, increasingly, especially in the fourth century, and structures of authority become very much part of a hierarchy of powers that are in part political and social. But also, I mean, there's just a tendency, uh, just a natural human tendency to want to say, right, got it. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, uh, yeah. not have to think about it. Just say, and um, now, of course, the absurdity of it. I mean, we see the absurdity of it all the time. Recently, there was a case just recently of a priest who mm -hmm. for 20 years, what was his name? I, just I don't know his name. I forgot his name. Let me speak. Well, for 20 years, he's been using the wrong formula for baptism because, of course, the formulary in the, in the, and this is entirely in the, you know, to be honest, this is, you know, dealing with the Western 
rite of baptism as it as it as it traditionally says the priest is supposed to say i baptize and he'd been saying we baptize Andres now, Aranjo or Aran, Aranjo? I think Aranjo, yeah, I think that sounds, that sounds, uh, I mean, it was definitely uh, um, uh, somebody of uh, almost a certain Latino name. I, I, that I remember. Yeah, it's Aranjo. <laughs> it's Aranjo. Yeah, it's Aranjo. Uh, from Arizona. Yep. Yeah, that sounds right, from Arizona. Right. So now you have to be staggeringly. I'm sorry to say, staggeringly stupid in some way. Make yourself stupid to believe that in the courts of eternity, God feels he is bound to the <laughs> formula of whether the first person pronoun is plural or singular the, <laughs> to impart grace. And for want of that, for 20 years, would allow people to imagine that they're sacramentally in good terms with him when they're not, and might actually just, you know, send him to hell if you're, you know, <laughs> particularly kind of rigorous. Now, you know, this is, this is, this is what makes a mockery of tradition, right? This is, yeah. this is, this is what it becomes worse than a caricature of itself. Uh, you know, at that point, you just want to find out who the bishop or monsignor or church body is who, who has raised this issue, seek them out, trip them, uh, you know, so that they fall into puddles of water and, and, you know, help them up. And as you're brushing them off, accidentally break their glasses and things like that. I mean, just, you know, your impulse is one of, 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 and mine is, you know, every time I hear a story like that, I think, do we really need clergy? (laughs) What do they do uh, except, uh, yeah. You know, the thing that kind of drove that question for me, and I'm sorry, I don't want to make this too personal, but I know I've seen this impulse, this, this fight in me, I studied philosophy in school, uh, and as a philosopher, I mean, I, I, I always approach things kind of with that, come what may, let me just take the logic where it leads me. But then I also, on the flip side of this, had my evangelical church involvement, where it's the opposite, where it seems like the work of the theologian is to do precisely what you just described, which is to try to point out that all these people didn't actually mean what it seems like they meant when they said something. It's like, and, and I, I find myself living in this world often where I'm like, okay, here's a challenging idea. Let's consider it. And then also qualifying it to all of my Christian friends by saying, don't worry. I don't believe the thing you're scared I'm, that I believe. And I hate living in that tension, that space. Uh, but it's okay, well, like stop doing it stuff. then. What's that? <laughs> well, then stop doing it. <laughs> That's a that's a fair point. <laughs> um, look, I mean, you know, I, I can't I, I can't uh, give you the psychological or the historical explanations that are probably uh, plentiful on the ground for why traditions develop in this way, mm. and every tradition, to some degree. Uh, suffers from this tendency, you know, to imagine that, that, and again, it's comfortable to feel that you've got the story straight, you don't want to be troubled. Uh, that, you know, at the level of just, let's say, the, the average layman or laywoman who simply doesn't want to be troubled with the details, it's so, look, you go to church, you, you know, go to confession, take the sacrament, uh, do the things that are necessary not to go to hell, leave the rest in God's hands, and then, you know, you, you can live your life knowing that those you've lost in this world you'll see again. You know, basically, for most people, it's not issue. What I don't understand are the traditionalists, the ones uh, for whom for whom it becomes uh, a matter of... of uh, ferocious hatred of you know I mean the the, the 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 persecutors the inquisitors the builders of of, <laughs> of pyres to light for the heretics and um, you know you do have to ask what prompts them to the sort of certitude 
that can become a kind of truculent hatred of any suggestion that seems to alter the picture that's familiar to them. Because I, I, I tell you, I've never yet met a traditionalist who, when I've asked him, and it's usually a him, <laughs> to uh, justify the initial act of faith in, say, I don't know, the, uh, the magisterium or, or sola scriptura or, or the patristic synthesis or whatever, uh, can do so in any way that, that, that isn't utterly circular. And you would think that that would chasten most of us to realize that all faith is a contingency. I mean, that, that, that you, you've heard something that you find compelling and convincing, but the, 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 the absolute truth of which you, you can't demonstrate even to yourself. Yeah. So the act of faith is just what William James said it is in a sense. I mean, you're, you're always you know, in a dense fog on a mountain, you come to a parting uh, of the ways. One path may lead in the right direction. One path uh, might lead to a cliff face, and you'll have to turn back. But you do know that just standing where you are isn't getting you anywhere. So you, you choose, and that, that's, a, uh, that's a valid act. Well, as you choose, then that initial act, that initial fiduciary act can be fortified by rational uh, rational conclusions you draw by experiences, by by being integrated into a set of practices that give your life a coherence. But at the end of the day, um, no one uh, has sufficient grounds for certitude, even in that initial act of commitment, uh, to think that then then he or she uh, is in possession of the truth of the tradition. Yeah, and it is disturbing when you when you encounter it in its in in its intensest forms. And those most I I know where I have encountered them. I'm sure there are others. I mean, yes, among fundamentalist evangelicals, who let's be honest, for the most part, don't have the education even to know what it is they don't know. Mm -hmm. But you find the same sort of intransigence and, frankly, a more culpable kind of stupidity in traditionalist Thomists, in certain kinds of Calvinists, in yeah. better educated, uh, oh, I mean, my God, manualist Thomism is on the rise again in this country. And is there, has there ever been a system of thought that's, that's uh, more uh, morally deficient in its picture of God and more, more rationally uh, incoherent, and yet, and yet the people who cling to it cling to it as though it's the last fragment of a sunken ship uh, on, on the waves and the only thing that can get any of us to salvation, to the shores safely, anything else, you're going straight to hell. You know? Vatican II Catholicism? <laughs> yeah. You, I, I, one thing I do think just is a really good point. You talked about, you know, obviously the really extreme forms of this same sentiment that permeates everything you just described or, you know, the Inquisition, all that kind of stuff, the pyre, burning people alive, which, I, of course, is the exact response that people today are doing. We just don't have the power to kill people. Uh, but they would, you know, the funny thing is, is some of them would. And yeah, that's no, what, sure. if you read that recent book on integralism by Crayon and Fibister, you have a, a pair of degenerates basically uh, exciting themselves sexually by thoughts of being able to dominate and then even murder yeah. uh, people who don't, who, do, who don't fit into their understanding of, of you know, properly submissive uh, uh, Catholics in a, in, a, in a throne and altar society. No. And when you see people, you know, that twisted, um, uh, speaking for what they claim is Christian tradition, you know, you've reached a point of consummate absurdity. And what has driven them to that? It's that same impulse you're talking about. You know, this this fundamental inconcussum that they they feel they're standing on. Uh, even even to the point that you know it, it, it sounds precisely because it's devoid of charity, and therefore, being devoid of charity, it's devoid of ambiguity. So. You know, you might think that a Christianity evacuated of charity seems a bit odd, 
But to them, it's the only thing that makes it a stable and credible system because the moment you grow charitable, my goodness, you might actually forgive people for being Hindus or, or, uh, or, or, or not think that, that uh, you know, every wife who doesn't believe that she should be in absolute submission to her husband is an agent of Satan. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a few different, a couple you different questions. I haven't that I... slept much lately. I'm just sort of <laughs> rambling. No, no it's, it, it's interesting. Uh, my malice towards traditionalist Catholicism. So, uh, <laughs> why it should bother me? I'm not Catholic, so why should I care? Well, anyway, yeah, well, I, I just won't. I won't tell anyone at Kenrick Glennon Seminary, like Larry Feingold. Uh, what? <laughs> well, he's a nice guy. Yeah. I've, I've met Larry Feingold. I, I yeah. debated him once. I mean, his uh, he uh, actually does not hold with the, some of the more hideous aspects of manualismism. Right. He's not. Yeah, he's not a full bore double predestinarian and everything. But but the the uh, that second scholastic Thomism he holds to is simply it's, it's simply incoherent. You simply cannot. No, it just is. It uh, and I make the argument in the next book that's coming out. But and it, it's simply it's simply contrary to the entirety of patristic and biblical, and, you know, most of the best medieval theology. And, and uh, but but otherwise, he, he he's a very good and sweet guy. He's not he's not one of these. Uh, you know, one, one of these weird fascists like the fellows who wrote the Integralism book. Yeah. Yeah, no, I really, I've really enjoyed getting to know uh, Dr. Feingold and his wife, Marsha, and uh, it's been it's been good. I spend part of my time there at that seminary and part of the time at SLU. Uh, but I teach, uh, when I teach New Testament, I, I use your uh, translation uh, as one of, and I, I know that you don't have uh, much, uh, well, uh, the the other one that I have them look at is uh, N.T. Wright's New Testament. Uh, oh, why just... on earth would you do that? <laughs> well, I mean, really? I mean, come on. <laughs> I I would I have I have really? them do that. Dialectic, dialectic. <laughs> so what, I just... what commerce can light have with darkness? Okay. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I have them do it because, like, we're you know I'm teaching them the basic principles of Greek and Greek grammar. And then I and they say, you know, well, what's the right translation? And I say, well, uh, I, you know, obviously there's not always a, a right answer. You know, we get lost in this idea of a one right answer for the yeah. translation. Uh, but then I offer up, I was like, here's some alternatives. And and one, you know, just for my audience, uh, you you kind of uh, give a little s snapshot of how you read the New Testament that I just find, you know, it, uh, jarringly foreign to us. Uh, you know, you say uh, this is like page thirty five, but much of the New Testament narrative of salvation tells a, of a cosmic dispensation under the reign of the God of this aeon, or the archons of the cosmos, or the evil one, and of spiritual beings hopelessly immured with heavenly spheres occupied by b armies of hostile archons and powers and principalities and demons bound and cursed by a law that was in fact ordained by lesser merely angelic or archetonic powers uh and i mean it just it goes on in this and part of that uh you know foreignness uh that you bring up in your translation of the new testament is is so uh quickly glossed over uh by a lot of um other translators and other readers of the new testament yeah. why is it that we can't recover the kind of the vision the cosmological vision that you bring uh to the new testament um i mean i i don't know that i always think that you're right but i always think oh man i i clearly well, am missing well, things well, well, well how can i be wrong i mean because it's actually that's the explicit language that's the explicit language of paul and of the gospel of john and of second peter and jude and you know that's the universe they lived in. And now, yeah. does that mean that every take I have on every verse, you know, yes, it does mean that is correct. <laughs> but, but, but let's just pretend for a moment <laughs> that uh, I'm wrong about that. Um, excuse me, I'm just trying to check something here. All right. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, and by the way, I, I just finished uh, work on the second edition of the, that New Testament translation. It's uh, it's more disturbing now. Uh, oh, <laughs> good. 
Well, I discovered that, uh, I'll get to your question in a moment, let me just say this, that I discovered that as, as much as I set out to break with received translations that were dependent upon later doctrinal formulations, I realized that I had failed to do it as thoroughly as I should have done. You know, <laughs> which um, is hard to believe. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, let's take it. You know, to me, just the example I gave recently. I, I have the, a Substack newsletter that I write mostly because I like money, and um, <laughs> no, no, just because I like writing. Occasionally, I, don't, I no longer work for a single uh, magazine anymore. So, um, but. Uh, uh, but the money's good too. I mean, that's that's nice. That's a nice. Uh, but in in uh, chapter eleven of Romans, when, when you know, very famous verse, you know, if the, you who are wild a uh, wild olive by nature, is how we read it, right? Are grafted in to the vine, and it's always contrary to nature. How much more so will those who by nature, you know, when when, when Jews are reconciled, it'll be grafted in. The grammar is there because how much more will they be grafted in is, is actually bad, you know. It is, it, the Greek is as bad as the English there, but Paul wasn't a, uh, wasn't a punctilious stylist. You could tell he was speaking to his amanuensis very quickly, and then when he was asked to edit it, said, it'll come out in the wash. Don't worry, they know what I mean. <laughs> I've got, I, I've got to get, uh, you know, on the road again. You know. He was sort of the Willie Nelson of the early church in that <laughs> But um, <laughs> the thing is, that's the locus classicus for, for um, uh, a lot of later theology of the difference between nature and grace. Mm. The problem is there that it's clear that Paul, who doesn't actually have a, a, a category of nature in that sense, is using the word thesis in its actual literal meaning at the time, uh, which was just line of descent, line of uh, uh, lineage, pedigree, and this is clear from the from the the, uh, the phrase that has been traditionally mistranslated as contrary to nature. If you remember the Greek, which I'm sure you do. I don't. I don't. On top of my head, I'll be honest. It's, it's parafisi. Well, parafisi doesn't mean contrary to nature. It means outside. It just means outside or parallel, a different line of derivation. So it's clear that all he's saying is that you know, by lineage, by derivation, by race, you're inferior to the children of Israel in a sense. You're you're not. Um, you know, you're you're a wild olive. Therefore, you're not cultivated. You're not. You know. Uh, there's no language there that, that should tend towards the later abstract um, uh, antithesis between grace and nature, just as mm. Paul doesn't have a concept of supernature at all, the, you know, the nature-supernature division and manualist Thomism that I always complain about couldn't be more um, uh, inauthentic when, when used to, to read the New Testament. Well, in my first translation of that, I still use the word nature, and I still said contrary to nature. Now, I, I you know, for someone who's been reading Greek all his life, or all of his uh, you know, uh, cognitively mature life, it's weird that I, too, just read right over that in the Greek and, and ended up producing the standard translation again. Mm. So this time around, I've been even more fanatically scrupulous about those things and so, so you're a closet traditionalist <laughs> I'm a closet tra well uh, 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 you know I, I certainly am the product of mm. of the past and yeah. uh, you know that and part of the the argument of this book that we're discussing is that that's something that we have to overcome because mm. because it's that future horizon when we will see as in a glass it's not dark. We're not even dark. See, it's face to face. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to be willing to look back and see the flaws in the tradition and, and the corrigibility mm -hmm. of even doctrinal formulations of the past. Certainly, you know, when the Nicene Council came around, there was no mystique of councils. There was no notion of what a doctrine was. We didn't have the magical sense that, oh, a dogma has been pronounced and therefore is of its nature infallible. 
Mm-hmm. That's a later. That itself is a later imposition, uh, institutional imposition, upon the notion of what had happened in those councils. Mm. Those councils were held as if we're being guided to a formulation by the will of the emperor, but <laughs> but but also we hope by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And in that light, they're making arguments that lead to formulations that are novel, like again, homoousios. You know, that's mm-hmm. not a biblical word. Um, and they therefore were correcting, altering what was a long and established tradition. Anyone who actually knows the tradition of Trinitarian thought in their time, they were very much in the minority, uh, as, as at least, I mean, there was nothing in the, uh, Arius may have been an extremist in insisting upon the language of creation, but it was not even that, you know, that the word was created. But even that, he's not really breaking with, with the orthodox tradition of his time. He's simply stating, he's stating explicitly what is implicit already in the language that was common for, mm-hmm. and, and that's why the, the controversy also didn't end at Nicaea. I mean, the, the, uh, Mm-hmm. The Eunomians and others who were, you know, the Nef Matabaki, you know, they're still grounded in that older tradition. They're still fighting against what they see as the invade, the way the traditionalists today still struggle against Vatican II, um, which, which didn't even produce any dogmas. I mean, Vatican II was nothing but an attempt to clarify uh, the way the church stood in relation to the world and to relation to its own past, what its emphases were. Um, again, I'm not a Catholic, as I might say, but when you see traditionalists still struggling against Vatican II, think of them as being the analogs today of the traditionalists of the Eastern Church, especially at that time, the followers of Eunomius and others, mm-hmm. who couldn't reconcile themselves to what had happened in Nicaea. Mm. And, and, and they, there was, they were under no obligation to do so either. Let me point out that, 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 that again, the, the idea of dogma, of, you know, of an infallible pronouncement from a council as yet had not been invented. That's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, no one came away, not even the Nicene party, when they were successful, didn't come away thinking that the matter had been settled by God. Mm-hmm. They just felt that they had arrived at a statement that, that answered the questions and that were oriented towards that revelation they expected still to come and mm-hmm. as having been promised. Um, well, we're running up close on an hour here. Um, I have a question about baseball. Um, I have a question about the Vedas. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a few different things, you know, that I, well, I sort of. We can do. I, I don't. We can do a lightning round here, Doctor Hart. I heard you talk about kind of a Vedantic vision of Christianity, yeah. and it piqued my curiosity. Which, of course, it's going to make me pick up your next book. But I was curious what uh, what you meant by that. Uh, it was in a podcast I heard you talking about a while back. Uh, well, I, I mean, are, are you, I mean, despite your evangelical background, I take it yeah. that now you're quite, you're, you feel quite comfortable speaking yes. about Christian Neoplatonism, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, Vedanta, again, is, 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 a, is a system both faith and philosophy regarding among other things, the presence of God in his creatures and the presence of creatures in God. And uh, and I think that when I say Vedantic, I'm not, not so much in the Vedas or the Brahmanas or the Aranyakas, but definitely in the Upanishads, you have, I think, the beginning of a metaphysics even more, or very much like Neoplatonism, but that, that states certain things even more, or so that when properly understood, I mean, it, it, People in the West often have a rather fanciful notion of what, what Vedanta is, and it's a very large tradition with very with an, an enormous number of variants. But I think that philosophically there are resources there that that, that would go even further than the Neoplatonic resources we used in the past, but that, that more than to a greater degree are in keeping with the essential affirmations that we were talking about earlier about deification and what that says about human nature or created nature and divine nature and so on and so forth. Now, of course, also I studied Asian religions and there's a sentimental attachment there, but, but mm. yeah, uh, I think you'll find that 
that uh, I mean that's what I meant basically. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, a neo neo Platonic Christianity. Interesting, and I, I suspect that you are gods is going to be really kind of, uh, kind of resting in that kind of thematic, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not it's not a treatise on Vedanta. I mean, I a you know, Christian Vedanta, but it definitely goes. Let's simply say, especially in the first and the last essays, and then it goes to what many will regard as extremes. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so, are you saying that? Evangelical standard evangelicals probably won't love it. <laughs> I, well, I, I'm not expecting a great many of them to pick it up. Uh, <laughs> will Reverend Jeffers be able to make sense of it? I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, the question I wanted to ask about baseball was: I loved your essay on the the platonic nature of baseball uh, for uh, first things. It came out quite a while ago, but you say that it's the perfect game, the very platonic ideal of organized sport, the moving image of eternity. In athletics i think that would be a grand posterity uh but i wonder because of sabermetrics and the analytic revolution uh do you still think baseball is the perfect game like it seems to me where it's it's gotten so well, dry with the three true yeah. outcomes yeah, like no, have I, we lost the have we lost the connection on that like uh you know is the tradition so far gone um that it's it does uh, sometimes it's not even recognizable i mean i grew up in, in the 80s uh with whitey herzog and the cardinals i mean i'm from st louis uh right, but yeah, right. i don't know and, and, still... uh, you imagine the three the three true outcomes in whitey herzog's baseball i mean i mean not only not only did they hate to strike out i think they hated to hit home runs you know <laughs> that's right that's right um you know much better to have have uh, you know, uh well willie mcgee you know get hit an infield single and then steal second i mean that 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 was a triumph a home run just looked like you were trying to show off right, <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> no i i think i think sabermetrics has has gone got done a lot to ruin the game and so has the rules committee um you notice in order to uh, shorten the games, which, you know, is the, the rule changes they make inherently uh, 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 make the game more boring. For instance, yeah. being able to point to first on an intentional walk. Well, the problem is that an intentional walk, having to take four pitches, something can go wrong. Yeah, you know, I have seen. I once saw Nolan Ryan. You know, supposed to be get. This is early in his career when he couldn't hit the side of a barn, uh, <laughs> but, but he just threw a million miles an hour. But he was supposed to be get, issuing a, an intentional walk in the ninth inning. There was a runner on second. He was a reliever in those days. I think they brought him in just to scare people. And the first pitch was wild, so the so, so the runner went from second to third. The next pitch was wild, so the game ended. <laughs> but the other thing is, you know, when analytics, what, what can analytics not tell you? All right. The three, two, three true outcomes nonsense is based on, on a stochastic arch over 162 games, right? Arc over 162 yeah. games. And it can measure tendencies, but it can't in any way, except as a kind of mirage, dictate to you the proper strategy in a game. If you have Lou Brock on your team, you should be stealing like mad. Yeah, it's true that you know if Kent Herbeck is your fastest runner, no. <laughs> but the other thing is, what it can't measure is not you know, or you need like seventy-two, seventy-three percent uh, efficacy supposedly for it to be a worthwhile strategy. Well, what what it can't measure, for instance, uh, in any given game is the amount of disruption created by a base runner, whether he steals or not. Mm -hmm. Why it forces a quick pitch, it forces errors, fielding errors, you know, it, uh, it changes, uh, it, it limits the, uh, what pitches can be thrown and where you have to place the first baseman. It, 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 it contracts the, uh, it contracts the advantage of, of the pitcher and the team on the field in a way that, that cannot be measured uh, quantitatively, except in a very, according to a set of mathematical 
formulations that have been shown not actually to be very accurate. <laughs> and the result is the game is vastly inferior now. It's more boring, and it actually is not played better. The teams yeah, yeah. That, that rely on analytics do not do better than the teams that don't. Yeah. Um, the ones that, you know, the one, I suppose the one thing is, well, the shift does cut down on hits, but that's only because we have hitters who no longer no, have, been told, have been told <laughs> to go for the three true outcomes. Is I, you know, if every if every swing you take is an attempt to pull a home run, you know, even on a low outside slider, then yes, then of course the shift is very effective. So why not just bunt, you know, or try to hit the yeah. other way? I, my most recent baseball article on my Substack page was about my childhood hero Frank Robinson. He was a devastating power hitter, but on only one season of his career, which was a great season by most people's standards, 1965, he struck out exactly 100 times. He found it humiliating. He would never talk about that season. He rededicated himself to the game because he was an absolute insane perfectionist. So when he came to Baltimore in 1966, he won the Triple Crown and led them to a World Series. And halfway through the next season was even getting better. He was on a better pace because he was so humiliated by having struck out a hundred times wow. in 65. Oh. And if he hadn't had a concussion midway through the 67 season, I mean, for that season and a half, he was the best player in the game. He was one of the greatest ever anyway, but you know, if he hadn't had that concussion, it would have been two years of triple crowns without Carl Yastrzemski being remembered, you know, nearly as affectionately as he is now. So, no, yeah. I, you're right. The game is in the thrall of barbarians. I don't know if it can, if it can survive. It, it, much of the beauty of the game is missing. When I see somebody with two strikes on him and a runner on second swinging for the fences, I just think that Frank Robinson in his managing days would have walked out on the field and slapped him. <laughs> 